I'd like to start off today by asking you a little bit about your childhood. How did you hear about this project? What is your earliest memory? What did you have for breakfast just to test the level? Hello and welcome to episode three of the National Life Stories podcast. I'm Charlie Morgan, the Oral History Archive and Admin Assistant at the British Library. This week on the podcast I'm talking to Stephen Dryden. Stephen is the Broadcast Recordings Curator at the British Library and earlier this year he co-curated the exhibition Gay UK, Love, Law and Liberty. Gay UK marked the 50th anniversary of the Sexual Offences Act, which enacted the partial decriminalisation of male homosexuality in England and Wales. And it also marked 60 years since the Wolfenden Report, whose recommendations the Sexual Offences Act built upon. The exhibition itself was a great success, and although it has now finished, this podcast will hopefully give you a good idea of what it was about. We also hope the podcast will encourage you to go online and check out some of the relevant learning resources, oral histories, and other library collections held at the British Library. So we're talking today about the exhibition Gay UK. Can you just give us a brief intro about the exhibition, what it's about, how it came about? Yeah, so the, the exhibition um, is to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the passing of the Sexual Offences Act, which happened in 1967. Um, it's also the 60th anniversary of the Wolfenden Report, which came back in 1957. And we um, explore the British Library's collections, charting from 1885 and the Criminal Amendment Act, all the way up to 2017, um, and covering as much as we can the political, social and activist material that we have in the collections. And I should stress as well that it's only one narrative that we could have pulled out of the of the collections. Um, and my hope is that this will inspire people to come into the library and start finding their own narratives within the British Library, um, especially around transgender histories and transgender identities, which is something that we didn't explore within Gay UK Love, Law and Liberty. Um, a lot of it because the space just wouldn't give us the opportunity to do justice to that. Um, but hopefully it's something that we can explore in the future, but I'd, I'd love to think that somebody would come and see it and be inspired to come to the library and start exploring that themselves. There are a lot of sound clips in the exhibition. Um, what was your thinking behind including so many oral history clips and other types of sound material? Um, I, I work with oral history a lot. It's one of the most used departments at the British Library Sound Archive. Um, so I personally see the benefit of having uh, people articulate their own life and their own experiences and having that as part of a narrative, especially where it's a minority history, which isn't part of the main narrative. Um, the fact that that history is there in an oral form, I think, is incredible because history originally was an, an oral testimony, if you like. Um, and there's lots of conflict around whether gay histories are recorded or not. So um, E.M. Forster talks about a great unrecorded history of gay people. But it is recorded in oral history, which I think is great. And you're able to um, capture periods of history where there is no printed or written documentation necessarily like world war ii um so one of the interviews that we used is um by a gentleman called john alcock who is talking about being on shore leave in london um and the various encounters that he has with other military personnel while while on leave um it isn't something that's documented in written format as far as i'm aware and to have the person who was actually there giving their account of it is, uh, is, is I think, pretty magical. Uh, the, the place to go 
in those days, of course, were very thin on the ground. But there was a shake-up bar of the Regent's Palace Hotel was one of them. And I used to, I was very affected by all that kind of thing, hotels and chandeliers and that kind of thing. And I probably had enough money to get me down into the bar and buy myself one beer and uh, a packet of Woodbines, very cheap cigarettes. And uh, I was in the bar, the shake-up bar, which was only men, men only were allowed in the bar. And I was sitting at the, the bar on a high stool and I became aware of the amount of officers that were standing around, including two officers from my own battalion, which was in Portsmouth, the Army Catering Corps. And uh, I was aware then that all the officers there were homosexuals. And that gave me a tremendous lift. Uh, to um, realise that uh, other ranks were um, queer, the same as I was. And on the, on the following Monday, when I got back to the uh, battalion and I was marching across the square, one of these young officers was coming towards me and we saluted each other. And as he passed me, he said, have a nice weekend, dear. Keep it to yourself. And uh, that was, uh, that was, you know, that sort of gave me strength. You know, not that I needed uh, any kind of moral boost, but it was very gratifying to uh, realise that uh, officers were also inclined to be my way as uh, anyone else was. I think what the, the clip with, with John really highlights is the um the fear that uh, the authorities had at the time that homosexuality um as well as being morally corrupt was also breaking down the class system so john talks about being in bars and associating and talking with officers and people from a different class than himself and the um the camaraderie that comes across in the interview as well i think is really uh, really really lovely um because you can view gay history as being about persecution and being um, repressed and um, it all being very bleak and certainly a bleak picture is what comes across in a lot of the oral history interviews about this period but I think this clip of John um, has a lot of humour to it as well uh, which I think is really important to, to, to acknowledge and share. So the next clip we're going to be talking about is with Tony Dyson and could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah so Tony Dyson is uh, a really important character in um, gay liberation in the UK. Tony Dyson was a teacher who after the Wolfenden report was published in 1957 was shocked that the recommendations on prostitution were being implemented pretty much straight away but the recommendations on homosexuality and the two were dealt with together in the same report um, were being brushed under the carpet and weren't going to be addressed straight away and tony was the founder of the homosexual law reform society which was the first organizing um, group in the uk around having the the law changed for gay people or gay men specifically um, and the implementation of the wolfenden report that the law had no place in the private lives of its citizens did you read the Wolfenden report? 
Oh, yes, I did. 1957. Yes. What did you think of that? Well, it seemed to me an enormous breakthrough that the subject was at last talked about and that the change in the law was at last officially recommended. The first part on prostitution, uh, I tended not to agree with because it seemed to me too harsh on prostitutes. And I certainly felt it was terribly wrong that they should be treated in the same report as homosexuality, uh, as though the two things would be equated anyway as different aspects of vice. And then it was absolutely clear that Butler and the Tories were going to put the first part on prostitution into law and absolutely bury and forget the second part. And it was at that moment, I think, that I decided, well, it must not be buried and forgotten. Somehow or other, it must be uh, kept alive. It must be talked about. And it must be talked about and talked about until everyone is so sick and tired of hearing it talked about uh, that they just feel they have to do something, if only to uh, uh, stop the discussion. But, of course, the discussion still hadn't started. And I was waiting for somebody to start it, but nobody seemed to do it. So you did it yourself? Well, in the end, I just felt that if nobody else was going to do something, I might have a go, and uh, I suppose that's what I did, if yes. you put it that way, yes. So, so with this clip, you know, The Wolf in the Report and the 6-7 Act, these are documented parts of history, so, and so what do you think the, the clip with someone like Tony Dyson brings of, to, to adding to a bit of history of which we do have some sort of written records? Um, that's a really interesting question and I think that what it does is it humanises a person because I think the written record it's very easy to historicise it and um, to make it look as if people knew what they were doing when they when something has already happened and it's the past I think what oral histories do and when people are trying to articulate themselves is it, it gives it a uh, a human face to what could be viewed as these sort of seminal moments within a minority history like uh, gay law reform. Tony Dyson um, risked everything by coming out and campaigning for the recommendations of the Wolfen Report to be implemented. Um, and he's not bravado about it. He's actually quite, um, you know, he says, I'll give it a go. And what he did actually resulted in the implementation of the 1967 Criminal Offences Act, which partially decriminalised homosexuality. So his giving it a go um, isn't necessarily something which would be recorded in the written or um, textual history, but to have the person who actually did it, who started it, saying that, I think is, is wonderful because it, it gives you kind of strength or courage that anybody can create social change. Fantastic. The next clip is uh, we're going to be talking about is with uh, Maureen Duffy. So I guess if you could talk about the clip with Maureen Duffy, but then perhaps also talk about the role of women in this exhibition and women in gay history. Yeah, so um, we talk about um, gay women in the early sections of this exhibition with people like Radcliffe Hall and her book The Well of Loneliness. Um, but where I think we really start to get... Um, an, an identified lesbian voice is during the 1950s and the 1960s, so the founding of the Minorities Research Group and the publication of Arena 3, uh, which was the UK's first um, lesbian publication. What I think is really interesting about this clip with Maureen Duffy is that Maureen Duffy came out in the 1960s. Um, she was a member of the Homosexual Law Reform Society and she was um, heavily involved and a participant in the gay London scene. 
she was going to the Gateways Club, which is a, a kind of a legendary lesbian club in Chelsea. But she also talks about lesbian identities during this period. With inquiries, we discovered about the Gateways, you had to become a member, you know, were issued with a little card. There's a little street off the King's Road, um, just after Beaufort Street, um, on the left-hand side, going down towards the river, called Bramerton Street, and very few yards along, on the left, was a green door. And you opened the green door and were immediately confronted by steps down to a basement where there was a heaving mass, if you weren't very early, <laughs> of people dancing away to a noisy jukebox. And somebody called Smithy, who was a sort of typical um, heavily built dyke. And Smithy worked behind the bar and sort of generally acted as a bouncer if there was trouble. The wife, the madam who ran it, was, was called Gina. <laughs> Gina was very glamorous. I mean, I don't know if she was Italian, but um, she appeared to be, you know. What so she, she and Smithy looked like a perfect, you know, item because she was glamorous and wore makeup and had her hair done and, uh, you know, wore feminine clothes. Whereas, as I say, Smithy was sort of betrousered and the masculine end of the female homosexual spectrum and the opposite end, the feminine end, is femme. So people talked in terms of butches and femmes because I decided that I was not going to wear a skirt anymore. You decided you were never going to wear a yeah. skirt again? Yeah. And I haven't. <laughs> so I had to turn down the invitation to the gar Queen's Garden Party. Because you have to wear a skirt for that, yes. do you? Yes, skirt, <laughs> hat and gloves. Um, okay, so if we move on to the next clip, mm -hmm. which is, well, so it's Mary McIntosh, there's actually a couple, there's two, is there two clips from Mary McIntosh? Yeah, the so, so Mary McIntosh um, was one of the early members of the GLF, so a female member of the Gay Liberation Front, also known as GLF. And what was really interesting about the Gay Liberation Front was that they were completely different from the Homosexual Law Reform Society. The Homosexual Law Reform Society wanted legal reform to make their lives better. Um, the Gay Liberation Front completely rejected that and said that gay liberation wasn't about law reform. It was about a revolutionary change in society. And what's really interesting about Mary McIntosh is that she was involved from an early, an early, early meetings with the Gay Liberation Front in was involved in writing both their demands and the um, Gay Liberation Front Manifesto, which was published in 1971. And um, she talks specifically about the last of the eight demands, which is that gay people should have the right and feel free to hold hands in public as everybody else does. Now, you could argue that gay people have always had that freedom. What they don't have is um, an assurance or the knowledge that they won't be beaten or ridiculed on the street. And arguably, from the, um, the eight demands that the Gay Liberation Front set down in 1970, there are quite a few which are still relevant today. So holding hands in public is possibly one of them. Well, definitely one of them. 
but also within the GLF demands, there are things like um, how is sexuality taught at schools um, and how is it treated um, by psychiatrists, which is still still relevant where conversion therapies are still used in some parts of the world. But this clip specifically deals with the, um, the, the demand to hold hands. The first thing that we did in the Gay Liberation Front, probably the, certainly in the second meeting, was discuss what should be our uh, demands. Each of them I remember being debated. Particularly, I, I remember the demand for holding hands in public, our right to hold hands in public. Some people said it was quite trivial and, you know, not nearly as important as as the other ones and some people said it was vitally important and and we needed that right in order to show um, that there was nothing wrong with being gay and we we didn't at that time have slogans like glad to be gay and gay power and so forth so we did have to fight our way towards that I think. So you mentioned that the interviews in this collection are, you know, an hour or more longer and you cut them down to, say, three minutes for the exhibition. Did you do the selecting and the edits yourself? I did, yes. How did, did. that feel? Um, it's interesting. I Earlier this year, I read um, Perils of the Transcript by Raphael Samuels. And it really moved me. Like, I thought it was really important to read about how punctuation and commas and full stops and uh, removing ums and ahs and pauses affects the entire flow of what what you're transcribing or, or what's going down on paper and the difficult thing about including oral history in an exhibition is that it is an editing process as well so it's cutting clips and adding sticking them together in some instances so that the narrative flows easily um, again I think it's super essential because it gets people into the library and hopefully listening to this material themselves and forming their own opinions about it, um, but by no means easy. Did you ever have any conflicted opinions about whether it was right to cut edits at certain points, whether you thought you were representing that person's interview well in the edit? Or? I did, I did, um, but I was, um, I was assured quite late on but it made me feel retrospectively better when um, I talked with Jonathan Blake, who um, whose clip uh, oral history testimony is included within the exhibition um, relating to his diagnosis of HIV. And Jonathan is a wonderful person. He's very animated and he talks very passionately, but not necessarily in a sequential order of events. So he would he jumps around quite a lot talking about his life currently which is one of the joys of oral history people can talk about their current life and their current experience in relation to their past and jump from the past and present really really quickly um jonathan listened to the edit that i'd done of his oral history clip and he said i would never have guessed that that was edited um which was great because um it was really hacked a bit <laughs> by the end of um of playing with it so i was aware of this disease for want of another word you know, that, that was happening. What year was that? Well, that would have been sort of, you know, from sort of 1980, really, in 81, I was sort of aware of, uh, I was aware of it. In the way that I think that sort of, that gay men sort of were, because there was talk about it, but not highly developed and not sort of, you know, sort of alarmist, but something was happening. And it seemed to be affecting sort of a, a large number of gay men in America. 
I'd got these terrible pains underneath my arms and sort of my, uh, my sort of uh, lymph system was sort of, was up sort of on my arms and in my groin and I just thought I'd better go to the doctor. But by that time they knew that I was sort of HTLV3. That had just, you know, been established and, you know, they were calling it that here and, you know, France it was LAV and it was something else in America, you know, everybody wanted to sort of claim the, the name of the virus. And they then sort of uh, wanted to, to do a biopsy on uh, one of the lymph nodes. So they sort of took me into hospital. I was off the main ward. And whilst I was sort of in there, sort of, they brought this very ill man into the bed next door to me. And he was having terrible sort of troubles. He was sort of, you know, internal bleeding and sort of hemorrhaging and what have you. And it just happened that he and I had met one another when I was on tour in, uh, in Norwich. So it was sort of, you know, really weird that here I was sort of, you know, in this hospital, in this bed, with this man sort of, you know, next to me, him in a terrible state. The connection's not really being sort of made in terms of, I'm not saying that sort of, you know, that, that I gave it to him or I got it from him, but just, you know, not really making these sort of connections because at that point people didn't know. So I think those were all the clips. Um, is there anything else about oral history in the exhibition you wanted to say? It is definitely, I think, um, one of the uh, exhibitions that the British Library's done where oral history has been most heavily used. And, uh, and I hope, if anything, that that encourages people to come to the British Library and start exploring oral histories who haven't necessarily encountered it as a research tool before. Um, I'm sure the context in which this podcast has been put together, everybody knows the benefit of oral history for their research. Um, but we've already had about 70,000 visitors through the exhibition and many of the comment forms that we've had back have talked about how uh, fascinating it was that there was so much oral testimony in the exhibition. So the idea of a, a, a whole new audience of people being exposed to oral history as a research methodology or tool uh, or just a way to access history I think is, um, is, is, is really positive um, and I would encourage anybody to try and mine it in an exhibition in future. Thanks for listening to the National Life Stories podcast. You can find out more at bl.uk and you can listen to many of our interviews on sounds.bl.uk. And as always, look out for the next episode of our podcast. How have you found the process of this interview? I was wondering how you've actually found doing this interview. I think we've covered that period of work. Is there anything you would like to add? Full stop.